what we want to do is take the cereals that you know and love from your childhood and upgrade them for the modern consumer. Meaning we want to replicate the taste and texture, but have radically different nutritionals and ingredients. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Gabby Lewis is the co-founder of Magic Spoon with his partner, Greg Seewitz. They met at Brown University and stumbled across an idea to start their first company, which was a a, a snack food based off of crickets, literally made out of cricket protein, which they sold a few years ago. And then together they partnered again to create Magic Spoon, which is a better for you cereal business, which brings all the pizzazz and color and fun of all the most sugary and delightful cereals you've ever had from your childhood, marrying it with the most healthy ingredients and, and, and products to make it them sweet, but also make them good for you. So it's really a remarkable story of how to thread the needle of both excitement and healthy, which is something that typically doesn't go together, particularly in the grocery aisle. And it's yet another direct to consumer business that seems to be doing things very differently. So stick around and you'll learn a lot. Let's get started. Hello. Gabby, hi, it's Morty Singer speaking. How are you doing? Very well, and you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this and agreeing to join me on the safari. So you, you are um, from across the pond, like me, I think. Yeah, from Glasgow. Good for you. And, and uh, yeah, I read, read, I've been reading a little bit about you guys, and uh, you found each other in college, and it's, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, it's um, past few years have flown by. We're actually just talking to someone yesterday at about how it's been like seven years since we've been in this industry, which still feel like we're, we're the young ones that are learning everything. But All right, Gabby. So it's amazing to have you. Um, you guys, you and your founder, your partner have been in business before. Um, maybe give us a little bit of an origin story. I know you've told it a thousand times, but tell it a thousand and one times. Of course, of course. Thanks for having me. So I am from Scotland originally, came to the US to study at Brown University studied philosophy and mathematical economics. I actually thought I was going to enter the world of finance. So briefly interned at a hedge fund called Bridgewater, was planning to go there full time when I graduated. But during my senior year, started working on this little idea on the side for a healthier protein bar. At the time, this was sort of pre-RX bar, even pre-Quest bar, really. There wasn't much in the way of legitimately healthy protein bars that didn't taste like cardboard. And so just during my senior year of college, I was working on that business plan, 
didn't really think it would turn into something real. It was more just something to pass the time during my senior year. And while I was working on that idea for a healthy protein bar, one of my roommates in college, Greg, went to a conference at MIT on climate change. And there, everybody was talking about this idea of insect protein as a means to feed a growing population. So insects are much easier to farm. They require less feed, less resources, less space compared to conventional agriculture. And so we, we brought those two ideas together and built out this idea for a protein bar using cricket protein as a sort of introductory vehicle to introduce Americans to the idea of eating sustainable insect protein. And again, at the time, it was really just an idea. We didn't think it would turn into something real. But over the course of a few months of our senior year, we did some business plan competitions and won. We met some angel investors. We took some product to a local farmer's market, and everybody loved it. Did the same thing at a CrossFit gym. And so over the course of a few months, it turned from this sort of side project idea into what we thought could maybe be an actual business. And so we graduated college in 2013, moved to New York City, and we decided to launch that business and see what happened. We did a Kickstarter campaign, which was wildly successful. We had lots of press and decided that we were going to make that um, our, our focus. So I didn't go and work at a hedge fund I thought I was going to work at. Greg, uh, my partner, decided not to go and pursue the PhD. He thought he was going to do. And we then spent five years building Exo, our last business. And I'll sort of fast forward through all of that and get to the, um, yeah, the current business. But we ran that for five years, sold about a year and a half ago. And knew we wanted to start another food and beverage business. But we also knew we wanted to swing in the opposite direction. So rather than taking a very small niche idea and trying to push it towards the mainstream, we wanted to find a massive category that was really desperate for some disruption. Excuse the um, overused marketing words there. And when you look at the biggest categories in the grocery store, you've basically got cereal, milk, and soda. And in the latter two, milk and soda, you have endless startups trying to innovate, whether it's plant-based milk or lab-grown dairy. And obviously in soda, you have everything from seltzers to kombuchas. But you look at the cereal market, and it's this enormous market that looks the same today as it did decades ago. And it hasn't been upgraded for the modern consumer who cares about nutrition. So we decided to to fix that. And I'll, I'll pause there because I'm, I'm talking a lot. No, it's good. I think the um, the word disruption, I know people don't like to use it. I, I like to think of it more of as an evolution because, you know, the most brands have been stuck in the fifties, um, for, you know, <laughs> for a long time. Um, and mm-hmm. so the evolution of bringing, um, a category into the 21st century or, or deep into the 21st century, maybe, and, you know, really following the consumer, thinking about what he and she, uh, cares about. And, uh, and so what are the tenants? What are the, sort of the pillars of, of, of the business of Magic Spoon um, so that everyone can learn more about it. Obviously, direct to consumer for a reason, but um, tell, us, tell us about Magic Spoon. Yeah, of course. So what we want to do is take the cereals that you know and love from your childhood and upgrade them for the modern consumer, meaning we wanted to replicate the taste and texture but have radically different nutritionals and ingredients. And so for us, that meant as much protein as possible as little sugar and carbohydrates as possible and avoiding things like grains, soy, 
gluten, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we spent several months kind of working within those parameters to try and create something that tasted as close as possible to the cereal you remember while fitting within those nutritional parameters. And so what we ended up with is four flavors of cereal, cocoa, cinnamon, fruity, and frosted, all of which have 12 grams of protein, just three grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. So high protein, low carb, keto friendly, take all of the trendy nutritional boxes that people want to tick these days. And we launched these 100% direct to consumer in April of last year. So we're now 10 months into our business. Amazing. And so the, um, and now I now know why you called it magic because it does sound like it's all probably impossible to uh, to pull off. How how did you how long did you take in sort of research and development for the creation of uh, the different uh, the four different uh, flavors? It took a long time. I'd say close to a year to develop the the products. And there's a few different stages. So the first and hardest stage is creating the base of the cereal. So you can imagine just like an unflavored Cheerio, for example, is the base. And that involves figuring out how to mostly replicate texture without using the grains and carbs that most cereal base comes from. So for us, that meant experimenting with basically every protein source you can imagine from whey protein to pea protein to collagen and everything in between to figure out what is the the maximum percentage of protein we can use because the more protein you use, the less carbs you're going to have. And... How do we do that without making the product too hard or crunchy and so still maintaining that sort of like crisp texture that you expect to have from cereal? So that's the base. And then the next two parts are the flavoring and the sweetening. So the flavoring side is probably the, the easiest. The, you know, the natural flavoring world is, is pretty far advanced right now. So you can work with any number of food scientists or flavor houses and give them an idea of the type of flavor you want to create. And they can come up with, you know, dozens of different cocoa flavors for us, for example. And then it's just running focus groups and giving some feedback. Maybe we want like a little more vanilla notes and things like that. And then the third stage, which is also quite hard, is the sweetening. Mm. So we obviously want our cereal to taste like it's got tons of sugar in it, but we don't want to use any sugar. And so for that, we experimented with every natural sweetener under the sun and eventually arrived at a blend of three natural sweeteners, allulose, stevia, and monk fruit, which in isolation all have off notes and aftertaste that aren't particularly pleasant. But when combined in this particular ratio, they most closely replicate the taste of actual sugar. So that, that was a sort of three-stage process of getting this product made. And while we were developing it, we visited basically every cereal factory in the country. Um, wow. and it, was, uh, it was a wild few months. And how long did that take before you launched? It was, it was close to a year. Wow. And so when you think about the customer who you're actually designing these products for, because you know, ultimately you have them very clearly in mind, what is it do you think? I mean, there's, there are a few factors, but I think some of the two factors that pop up are obviously, and you referenced them earlier, the, on the one hand, the, the, uh, the, ways pe- the way people want to eat, the different ingredients they want to put into their bodies, and the more mindful, let's say, of, of those things, and whether it be the fad diets, but more importantly, maybe veganism or uh, keto, etc. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, just not wanting to 
um, not wanting to buy mum's brand or grandma's brand. Um, mm, yeah. would, you, would you weight it 50-50 or one way or the other? Or how, how do you think about that as the reason behind all of this? Yeah, I think it's mostly the first point you outlined. So cereal is actually unique in that unlike other categories, we we consumers still do have deep love for the traditional brands. So if you're looking at soda, for example, um, and you're making a healthier soda, and you, you ask someone why they're buying that healthier soda, you might hear them villainize Coca-Cola or Pepsi. And the big soda and beverage brands uh, are kind of hated as you know causing obesity and diabetes, and it's almost trendy to villainize them. Cereal, on the other hand, even though logically it's, it's a little similar, you know, these are massive companies pumping sugar into what's mostly children's food items. People actually have quite positive relationships with these brands. Um, they love the marketing. They, they have very fond memories of sitting in front of the TV, watching cartoons, the bowl of sugary cereal. So I actually don't think the pool is coming from people who don't want to buy those other brands because they don't like those brands. Um, I actually think it's the combination of the love for those brands and the love for the product category and cereal in general with the recognition that it's just not very good for you that that's leading to our success. So it's people who grew up loving cereal still do sort of secretly love it, but know they shouldn't be eating all the time to our customers. Yeah, I think you guys call it a modern take on nostalgia, which is, I think, a, a very graceful way of putting it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a few different taglines we have that all sort of like touch at the, the same idea. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. So let's talk about price for a second. Um, across the whole consumer industry, digital native brands and others are wrestling with price and how to price various consumer products. Um, some of the digital native brands in, let's call it apparel and footwear accessories, have tried to undercut the, um, the incumbents because of the distribution mechanisms that are in fashion, let's say that. Um, and then others have actually decided to, to say, look, we're going to give you the best quality in the world. And, and we're going to price our products on par with the other guys. But as a result, you're really getting something far more uh, than you would get from the incumbents. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I also love the thing about um, cost per wear. In the case of outerwear, for example, cost per wear. The reason why Montclair and Canada Goose are doing so well is because when you look at buying a $1,000 coat, you might say, well, you know, I'm going to wear it a lot. And therefore, the cost per wear is quite small. And when I look at cereal, and I think about the fact that you're nearly double the price of the um, of, of the uh, the grocery brands or the national brands, um, I think of the cost per meal in your case, and it's actually still just a it's a tiny amount of money, right? So whether you're you know on on par with them or more because you're putting more into the product, um, I think it shouldn't really be a problem. So how did you wrestle with pricing as a 
as a launch plan and uh, and all the things I just said. Yeah, it's fascinating. We're we're going back and forth on this and testing different things every day. Our our cereal, like you said, is in some cases honestly three times the price of other cereals. And what's hard is this is a category that is by definition just the cheapest possible ingredients. You know, all cereal is GMO wheat, corn, and sugar, which cost basically nothing. And people have been conditioned over decades and decades to view cereal as as cheap. And we're never going to be that price. You know, our ingredients of whey protein isolates and coconut oil and natural sweeteners cost far, far more than wheat and corn and sugar. And so no matter what scale we get to, we're never going to be competitive with regular cereal. I don't think we need to be because, like you said, our price per bowl per serving is still very cheap. So we're $1.39 per bowl, which when you compare to other healthy breakfast options like a smoothie or a bar or a shake or a yogurt, extremely price competitive. But we're not when you compare us to a bowl of junky cereal. (laughs) So that means for us, it's just a lot of consumer education around what this product actually is and doing everything we can to not be compared to traditional cereal when you're thinking about price. So on our website, that means we very prominently display the price per serving, and then we have like some very clear explanations for what leads us to get to our pricing right now when people ask and they're curious why we are more than other cereal. And usually when we explain, whether it's via email if someone writes into us, or on social if someone comments on one of our posts on Instagram, people understand it quite quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very similar to looking at a protein bar compared to a candy bar or a kombucha compared to a Coca-Cola or a cold-pressed juice compared to a Tropicana orange juice or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and once people sort of think of this as the next iteration of what we're, what of the category we're going into, they, they understand why it's more expensive. So, so you and Greg, um, if I'm not mistaken, are both probably around or under 30 years old, correct? Yeah, we're 29 and 28. There we go. So it's quite rare to find people under 30 years old who are now onto their second entrepreneurial business. Um, I know that's, I would say second successful, or at least for the time being, which we all (laughs) deem it to be, but I think it will be a huge success. But nonetheless, one, I think most people would, would deem what you're doing and what you did as successes. How are the paths different between EXO your first business um, and what's going on now. I mean, were there any? Was it has it been a similar track, um, or are there sort of challenges now that are unique to this experience? I mean, of course, there are always unique things, but um, how, what are the similarities and differences from your first go around? Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of my biggest learnings, and this probably seems trivial, but I didn't quite fully grasp it, is just how much product market fit matters. When I started EXO. I believed, and I think this belief was reinforced by a lot of investors and a lot of sort of startup gurus. I believed that if you're a great founder, you can make anything work and that product and market matters less than making the right decisions and having hustle and working hard and you know having all the attributes that a great founder should have. What I now realize, having done this a couple of times, and, and this go-around, we're actually doing a lot of the same things. So we work with the same influencers. We're using the same paid acquisition channels. And I can see one for one just how radically different the outcomes are from different in- inputs. So, for example, work with an influencer now we worked with at our last business. And the influencer now might generate five times more sales from the, the same post on Instagram than they generated when they promoted our prior business. 
So that's been um, a pretty fascinating learning for us. Mm-hmm. And what that means is the, the growth here has just been much, much faster because we have much greater product market fit. We're selling something that basically everyone we talk to, they want this. You know, everybody loves cereal. You don't have to convince them that cereal is great. And everybody wants to eat less sugar and consume less carbs. Again, you don't have to convince them of that. Yeah. At our last business, we were selling something that nobody knew they wanted yet. And in many cases, they actively did not want to consume <laughs> insects. Yeah. And we also had to build an entire supply chain from scratch last time. So we, we lived in Thailand for six months building a supply chain out, for example. So that was a much more complicated business. And this one's growing much faster and I believe will be much, much bigger as well. So when you launch this direct to consumer, and I think you're still mostly, if not predominantly, um, direct to consumer, right? You haven't done any wholesale partnerships yet, correct? We're, we're 100% direct to consumer still. Yeah. 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 So the whole question, therefore, of multi channel and starting the way you, you did, what are the, the great benefits that you've learned from being able to engage directly with your consumer and being able to sort of mesh with them, get feedback on taste or what have you? What things were you able to put in place to learn and evolve over the last eight, nine months? Yeah, I mean, that, that one-on-one relationship is, is everything early on. So we continuously survey via email. We continuously pick up the phone and call our customers. So we have everyone in our company call a few customers every week um, in different buckets. So we'll call customers who have bought once and never again to understand why did they not buy again. We'll call customers who bought five times to understand like what is it about our product that they love so much and who are they and are they single or do they have a family and who in the family is eating it and what time of day. Um, and we'll also call up people who came to our website left their email and never bought to understand what happened there and what could we, we be doing better. Um, so all of that has informed our pricing. It's informed um, recipe iteration. So right now we're actually removing stevia from our formulation, which came out of these phone calls. Yeah. Um, it's informed new flavor development, everything. So all of that is like massively impactful and we wouldn't be doing any of that if our focus wasn't direct to consumer right now. So when I first heard of your business, I said to myself, I want to get all of these to try them. Um, do you have a, a way of trying a little bit like, you know, the fragrance uh, direct to consumer guys like Fleur who, um, you know, they, they send you some samples for five bucks. And if you buy the, the, the full product, they credit you for the five bucks that you spent on the samples. Do you have a program like that or, or something similar? No, we, we thought about it. Um, right now we, we sell our variety case, which has one large box of each of our four flavors. We don't yet have a lower price trial option, honestly, because right now um, we're sort of struggling to keep up and growing very quickly. And the, the conversion on our site is very, very high. Um, there will, of course, become a point where we need to reach a broader group of people. And maybe those people aren't as likely to pay full price and try large sizes of all the flavors. So certainly at some point, we'll introduce some kind of lower priced entry product. But um, until now, we, we haven't done that. And so talk about the broader distribution. So the strategic alliance with pick a retailer, is that very far mm-hmm. out in the future or is it something that might be closer in? It's definitely not this year, but I'm under no illusion that direct-to-consumer only works for so long, yeah. whoever you are. Um, you know, whether you're a mattress company or a cereal company or whatever, 
you cannot build a huge business purely direct to consumer, at least not profitably and sustainably. So at some point, we will absolutely be partnering with both traditional and non-traditional retailers. So everything from the Whole Foods of the world to gyms, to coffee shops, to offices, to hotel mini bars, like that, that's all in the roadmap. And for us to build a huge, (laughs) successful business, that will all happen. Yeah. At the same time, we're a small company. We're 10 months old. We need to be maniacally focused. And right now, the direct-to-consumer business is thriving, and it's, it's looking really good. So we're going to remain focused on that while having some, some other irons in the fire so that we can um, quickly turn on the gears and, and enter some other channels next year at some point. So. Yeah, well, you're right to sort of stick, stick to your knitting and uh, stay, stay the course because, you know, one of the things, if there's one thing that we see, even with companies that are you know, meaningfully larger than yours, you know, ten, five, 10 year old companies that are maybe doing $50 million, but they're still small companies in, in some people's mm-hmm. eyes. And, you know, some distributor calls them from some country or some franchisee or partner or whatever. And the, and the founders or the owners, whatever, feel quite flattered by that and then sort of run headlong into a partnership with the first person who shows up on their doorstep. Um, and that can happen in every area, right? So, um, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. we've had, I, I think in the past week, we've probably had six emails from New Zealand from distributors who want exclusive rights to sell Magic Spin in New Zealand. And it's, it's just not worth the distraction. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And so, um, for what other things um, have you learned from the customers? You, you spoke about Stevia ingredient uh, st- um, feedback. What about the brand? What is it about the way you present yourself, the, the, the lifestyle, the, the branding, which is very fun and happy and it's nostalgic, as mm-hmm. you say. But have they given you any feedback on, on that or any other learnings that you, you know, on branding that you've um, been given feedback on? Yeah. Um, well, I think like the... the the thing that's resonating beyond the nostalgia is that historically there's sort of been this implicit, and in some cases explicit trade-off and sacrifice that people think they need to make between like healthy and fun. So if you look at any category in the store, you can literally look at the cereal aisle, for example, and see on the one side of the store, it's all the colorful, bright, playful, sugary, unhealthy cereals. And then on the other side of the aisle, there's the quote-unquote healthy cereals that have very bland, dull, white, muted packaging. And you see that in most categories where historically brands have reinforced this idea to people that you can either have like healthy and boring and dull and tasteless, or you can have like fun and happy but terrible for you. And what we're trying to do with our brand is thread the needle there and make clear that that trade-off doesn't really need to exist anymore. And so we're creating something that's legitimately healthy, actually healthier than all the cereals that claim to be healthy. But we're doing so with employing some of the techniques from like junk food marketing. And so we use the characters of all the unhealthy cereals, um, characters inspired by those characters anyway, and bright colors and cartoons and, um, you know, all this fun stuff, which feeds through into our Instagram and other places where our brand lives. And, that's really resonating with consumers because it, it's just fun and happy. And so we're getting to the top of the top of our time together. And um, but we always like to to end with you know things that our guests are interested in brands, even books. What, what, what's that interesting to you out there that you're following that we should be following? Mm, 
Um, you know, I, I think one thing we talk about all the time right now is, and sorry, this is so related to what we've already been discussing, is is what retail and online is going to look like in a couple of years, um, and just like how quickly it's changing. I think two years ago, you, you could be a direct-to-consumer company, or at least people thought you could be. And I think pretty pretty recently, maybe only in the past few months, everyone's realizing that like direct-to-consumer is, is not a strategy. It's not a type of business. It's just one step you take. It's a challenge. And it's not enough. So we're paying a lot of attention to you know what that means for our business, how quickly things are changing, um, and that's informing a lot of our decision-making right now. Well, good. Well, listen, it's been really great to uh, get to know you briefly uh, and by telephone. I'm sure we'll, we'll see each other soon. And, um, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for doing the safari and, and stay warm out there because it's freezing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care, man. Bye. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.